0: Andres is going to be speaking tonight on Logarithmic Skills of Pleasure and Me. Uh, I met Andres uh, two years ago at EA Global, he came up to me and a bunch of other people and was like, who wants to speak about mental health and affective altruism? I'm like, oh yeah, we are into it. I'm thinking we we're going to talk about depression, anxiety, like dealing with like all the suffering in the world. And he starts going on about like solving consciousness and sabotage and hedonic treadmill, And I was like, whoa, this is far more interesting. Um, <laughs> so when I heard he was coming to town, I was very excited come to this, and I'm actually sealing him tomorrow for a podcast interview, so look <laughs> for that in the future. Um, and Andres is with the FOIA Research Institute and has a very interesting blog called FOIA Computing, which I've been neck deep in. Um, it's a total talk in all the best ways, so uh, Andres, thank you for coming. Thank you, thank you everybody. It's all oh yeah, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Actually, that's an epistemological problem because then I, I'm not sure if you're going to applaud because it's my birthday or the presentation <laughs> was good. But. Okay, so uh, is everybody comfortable? Can you hold on for half an hour, 40 minutes where you are? There's some if seats not, over here. So. Yeah, there's definitely more seats over there if anybody is uh, walking a lot or anything of the sort. Okay. Do you just reuse the slide deck? Harvard EA show. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm reusing it. Yes. September thirteenth. That's right. Yes. We expect uh, all of our presentations to be custom made. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. Oh yeah, we can get one more person. Oh, and one other thing I forgot to mention is like we hang out after these, so if you want to talk to people, we're like, chill. Cool. That's Any, anybody else? want to sit over there. Okay. Yep. Yeah. OK, all right, I'll get started. OK, so I'm going to be talking about yeah the logarithmic scales of pleasure and pain. So basically kind of like ravaging our intuitions about actually in what way you can feel good or bad. Turns out it's uh, much deeper than you think. So here's kind of like a rough outline. So I'm going to talk about basically long tails and why they matter. Um, then I'm going to talk about kind of like metrics in effective altruism. Uh, a little bit about Goodhart's law, which maybe some of you have heard. Um, I'm going to discuss kind of the difference between normal and a log-normal world, and then I'm going to go over kind of empirical data, and conclude with basically kind of like the full argument for why pleasure and pain follow a, a logarithmic scale. Uh, so first of all, uh, you know, cost prioritization in effective altruism. You probably have heard, you know, ITN, you know, like importance, tractability, and neglectedness of causes, and I think like those are really really great uh, kind of like criteria uh, to use in order to select causes, um, and from those you can kind of uh, also in a sense um, the following two heuristics emerge, which is that whatever you choose uh, as a metric should be kind of like hard to good heart, and I'll explain what that means, and also you should really care about long tails when they emerge. So, what is uh, to good heart something? So the good law basically says that if you put up uh, a metric uh, to kind of like measure success um if the metric doesn't actually track kind of like the ground truth of, of the of the state uh what really matters then it's going to be optimized the way and people are going to be in a sense like hacking the metric uh kind of like following the the, the letter and not the spirit of the law in, in a sense and here's a few examples right if, if your metric in effective altruism is number of people who feel benefited by you then probably the best way to do that is just send them pastries with a personalized note. Uh, people will probably, you know, in their mind is like, oh man, that that man really helped me. But it's, you know, it's obviously just a hack. It's, it's not actually assisting them <laughs> in, in any way. Um, a metric that is really common in governments is basically you know the, the number of people below the, the poverty line or, or or extreme poverty. But the way in which you hack that is basically you just distribute packages that kind of get you over the hump. And They don't actually necessarily need to raise kind of the the average uh, well-being in any way. They just need to look good from the point of view of the metric. Um, Much more kind of like close to home, uh, quality adjusted life years, which is kind of something that is very, very prevalent in effective altruism. Um, It's it's definitely better than just, you know, lives saved or something like that. Um, But it does have a problem, and that is that generally speaking, you will... Care much more about kind of this concept of functional recovery, basically getting you out of the bed, you know, uh, being able to to, uh, to work and so on. All of these things that are kind of like used as, as kind of a criteria for uh, quality of life. Um, and you're going to neglect people who are in extreme pain, such that even if you were to help them, they would feel better, but maybe not necessarily functional. Right. So you're kind of like neglecting all these like huge uh, swath of people. Who, making them functional is just not realistic, but still improving their life could, could have like tremendous moral value. Uh, micromort is kind of like another important uh, metric, which is like, you know, one, one in a million chance of dying. If you do that, maybe kind of the thing that you do is, you know, you distribute HEPA filters, which are reduces kind of the PM 2.5 uh, particles in the air. You give free metformin, a diabetes drug, it enhances your, your life uh, expectancy a little bit. Uh, but, you know, on a wide enough statistical basis, like, it would probably maximize the metric. Um, and one that is pretty troubling is, like, the happiness index, uh, which actually has been kind of, like, peddled to some extent by some of the um, health, uh, mental health ineffective altruism. The problem with it is that it only really cares about, kind of, like, your, your level of functional happiness. Uh, and in that sense, prescribing more SSRIs across the world, it comes out as kind of a very effective means of improving happiness. Even though you know, SSRIs actually degrade the quality of your experience in a number of ways for, for the majority of people. you know It makes uh, orgasms not as good, it makes listening to music not as pleasant. So it's not necessarily something you actually want to do on a large scale. Um, the metric that I'm actually going to be kind of arguing for is this concept of a valence index. So valence in psychology means uh, the pleasure-pain axis, basically how good an experience feels. Um, and if you do that then basically uh, you will be able to acknowledge the long tails uh, that i'm going to talk about and uh you can kind of subdivide that into a hell and a heaven index when you really also care about extremes of pleasure and pain okay so now long tails which is kind of the other really important heuristic uh for doing effective altruism uh so you know long tails these these terms are like thrown around i'm just going to talk very very superficially to kind of like give you a little bit of a lay of the land so uh, Pareto distribution is uh, uh, essentially the same as a power law; they, they're almost synonymous. The only difference is that a power law basically tells you, hey, like, what percentage of people fall within, you know, a given value, a specific value. Whereas Pareto distribution is um, what percentage uh, of the entire volume of whatever you're counting uh, is accounted for by, you know, the bottom eighty percent, the bottom ninety percent. It's kind of like this cumulative distribution. But they're both talking about power laws. Um, very relatedly, you have kind of Zipf's law, uh, which is, again, the same, uh, essentially the same as a Pareto distribution. The only difference is that it's talking about discrete distributions. Pareto principle, you know, have you, you've, you've probably heard like the 80, 20 principle. So that gets confused usually with a the, with the power law, but really this is, uh, Pareto principle is a power law where the parameter alpha has been set to 1.16 and it just happens that empirically a lot of things have kind of like that parameter as the empirical value. Um but it, really the 80-20 and 80-20 rule is kind of a special case uh of a power law. Now the log normal distribution which is actually what I'm going to be talking about and modeling uh all the empirical data with that's really just taking uh, a normal distribution and using that as the uh, exponent of a number, so like e to the a normal distribution, and it looks very skewed, uh, depending on basically what the the, the, the values of, of the normal distribution are, but basically uh, unlike a power law with a log normal, you can kind of have this uh, this bump. You have kind of a, you can start at zero and then kind of like go up and then decay, as opposed to like necessarily kind of like be uh, have a high value at zero which is like what a power law implies um, so that's just you know a little bit of lay of the land um, long tails in effective altruism they show up all over the place you know how how you know how charities uh, are evaluated from the point of view for example give well uh, they look at okay how many quality adjusted life years do you get per dollar if you donate to different charities and you know that's very good uh, it gives you these uh, something that really looks like well it definitely is a long tail and it seems to be kind of a power law uh, where you know the you know top one percent of charities are not just a little better than the median they are like hundreds of times better than the median. and kind of like if you have this framework it really pays off to actually invest time and energy on deciding where to donate or where to volunteer time rather than just you know jumping right into what seems excited exciting in the in the present moment um, other metrics that in effective altruism are very commonly used are lives uh, saved per dollar, uh, catastrophic events prevented per dollar, a lot of people in uh, the X risks kind of uh, area think about uh, in those terms, or number of non-human animals saved, you know, how many pigs did you prevent from living in a factory farm and so on. And in uh, pretty much every analysis that you see in EA forum, in most of these cases you see a long tail. There's like a few things that have these massive payoffs, the typical case is very mediocre, and then like the bulk is like not very good. Um, now, uh, I would say that in a sense, like this generalizes to to the general world, like uh, and specifically also to to valence. So that if you're trying to kind of improve the quality of life of people, you will generally also see uh, kind of like a, a long tail distribution and specifically a log normal distribution. So kind of like what are, um, what is kind of like a, a good analogy for why why should we in a sense um, uh, expect uh, the intensity of for example suffering or the intensity of happiness to be distributed in a long tail fashion. So here I'm going to make a, uh, an analogy with avalanches. So avalanches are like a really good example of a long tail distribution in physics. So. If you measure basically what is the size of avalanches across all countries, like in a given year, if you just count every single avalanche that happens and, and you plot it um, in a log-log uh, uh, plot, it's going to look like a tail. It, it does seem to be a, 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 a long tail. Now, kind of like something that emerges out of that is that if you think of you know number the sizes of avalanches across all countries as kind of the root long tail distribution, there's a lot of long tail distributions that kind of emerge out of that. For example avalanches per year per country if you plot that that also is a long tail distribution size of largest avalanche in each country that's also a long tail or cumulative avalanche volume per country you know in Switzerland there's gonna be a bunch in Jamaica pretty much zero so you'll have like this very 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 skewed distribution Uh, but all of those additional kind of long tails really emerge from the top top one like that that's kind of like the thing that is generating all of the other ones and if you're not mindful of that, you may actually be missing some of the biggest and most important things. Like you, you may just focus on, oh, let's uh, you know, find uh, the country that has like the worst number of avalanches. Or, or for example, you may focus on um, kind of like, which is the country with the largest avalanche. And that's not necessarily actually the best strategy. Like it kind of like already comes with the assumption of how to cut, uh, slice and dice the, the, the space. But really, if you want to do it right, you should focus on the, kind of the root, root of all of these long tails. Uh, Again, kind of like a bit of an intuition for like why you would actually expect avalanches to be distributed in a long, uh, long, long tail. Well, it's really kind of a multiplication of many normal distributions. So think of, for example, how different types of weather create uh, the conditions where you have a lot of snow. And then think about, like, OK, how many times does that weather happen on a given country? And then multiply them, that times kind of like, like, oh, does this have kind of like the appropriate geography? And how large is the geographic features that enable very large avalanches? And all of these normal distributions, when you multiply them, you end up having these log normal distribution, these very, very, very skewed uh, long tails. Um, And I think basically, when it comes to suffering, uh, we have a very, very analogous case. So think of, for example, sizes of suffering events. Uh, huh. Okay, that's, that's six. Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, okay. L- size of suffering events across all people. Kind of like if you slice you know people seconds across you know all, all of the world and you look at okay how much each of these people seconds are suffering. I would claim that is a long tail distribution. Um, and more so, it generates kind of this, all of these additional long tail distributions that might be kind of deceptive in the sense that if you focus on them, you're not really addressing the, the, the root of the problem. So, suffering events per year per person—you know, how many times did you experience intense suffering? That's going to be a long tail. Uh, suffering caused by each medical condition—there's going to be a few medical conditions that account for the bulk of the suffering. Uh, size of the largest suffering event in each person and cumulative suffering per volume per person. Now, again. You have actually a very similar uh, uh, kind of analogy with uh, avalanches because you can think of neuronal cascades you know events of like uh, uh, a lot of uh, neurons firing uh, at once and it's been found that um, when you kind of like analyze uh, how many neurons fire in a given uh, time period that is a log normal distribution so you can think of it as like a uh, the physiological state is kind of like the weather and then the the state frequencies like how many times you know, per year does the, that weather happen? Do you have the appropriate, you know, central nervous system that enables this intense uh, state of suffering? Times environmental triggers. And when you multiply all that together, yes, it sounds like you would get naturally a, a long tail distribution. Um, and indeed, something that we, we actually uh, inquired about is like we, we went out and uh, uh, surveyed uh, in a bunch of forums people who experienced cluster headaches, which is one of the uh, absolutely most painful thing you can possibly experience. And we ask them, okay, how many cluster headaches do you experience per year? And it turns out that that is this ridiculous long tail distribution, where you know the people who are experiencing most cluster headaches, you know, they're experiencing thousands per year, whereas the median is more kind of in the 50 range. And you know, this already is kind of like is not really even getting at the root root long tail, but it's kind of one of these you know side effects of a root of the root long tail. Um, uh and this is yeah this is basically a slide to show that right now in the uh neuroscience literature is really really hot it's a really hot topic of research to investigate basically um log normal distributions in firing of neurons per second and you find it everywhere like in the hippocampus in the cortex in petri dish you know in uh, the thalamus it appears everywhere so it seems that if as an example you know the, the the number of neurons firing on a given second is kind of like a proxy for the intensity of your consciousness and yeah the intensity of consciousness would be distributed in a long normal uh, distribution and more so because kind of like how how much you're suffering is you know the quality of suffering multiplied by the intensity of consciousness yes the suffering would also equally be a long normal distribution um, and the same for bliss. okay so, what are kind of like predictions, specifically uh, talking about uh, valence, uh, the pleasure pain axis? What are kind of uh, uh, predictions that we would be making if we do live in a log normal world? So, first of all, we would expect uh, the existence of extremes. Uh, you would expect skewed ratios, and I'll explain all of these. Uh, appearance of long tails, basically, a few categories would account for most of the suffering, most of the pleasure, and deference transitivity. That is kind of like people will generally agree on what what makes. Uh, Which experiences are better or worse? So I'll I'll start with existence of extremes, uh, and I'll start with uh, pleasure. So (laughs) you may not notice or you may not know, but there are states of well-being that are far, 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 far better than you know a a typical very, very, very good day. Like these are really extreme outliers uh, if you kind of like plot them in terms of how good they feel. And uh, I'm gonna kind of like explain the three of them. Uh, first jhanas, so jhanas are uh, States of concentration that you achieve if you meditate for many hours a day for a number of years uh, And you're very very focused on actually making them happen uh, And there's eight of them and they get increasingly better and here are like kind of like typical descriptions of them so like the jhana number one uh, is described as uh, continuous multiple orgasms Uh, Janna number two, you know, opening a birthday gift and getting exactly what you most wished for uh, over and over again. And Janna number three, post-coital bliss, and and it continues to get better after that. Um, You have kind of a... In fact, like it it gets so good that it stops actually being about specific uh, external events. Like people describe it as like Janna four and above. They are what they call it formless uh, absorption into Uh, Infinite space as they call it absorption into consciousness into nothingness and then neither nothing nor something It's very strange. Like why would those be extraordinarily good? Subjectively, but they seem to be far superior to like orgasm, you know massages getting a promotion Just they're completely outliers when it comes to how good they feel Um, now a second example uh, kind of uh, extreme cases so a temporal lobe seizure so studies reveal that about 2% of people who have temporal lobe seizures um, experience uh, incredible states of pleasure and well-being uh, a very famous uh, quote-unquote sufferer was <laughs> Dostoevsky uh, he described it as you know a happiness unthinkable in the normal state and unimaginable for anyone who hasn't experienced it I am then in perfect harmony with myself and the entire universe Um, And he is not alone. Uh, In a a study uh, conducted in 2009, uh, it was found that, um, you know, kind of like you could decompose these states of extreme well-being of temporal lobe seizures into kind of three categories. Uh, First is the heightened self-awareness. I would really just rename it as intensification of consciousness or consciousness expansion. Uh, And an example quote is, during the seizure, it is as if I were very very conscious, more aware, and the sensations, everything seems bigger, overwhelming. It's kind of, your consciousness gets multiplied, which sounds absurd, but it seems seems to be the case. Uh, Second is physical well-being, a sensation of velvet, as if I were sheltered from anything negative. Uh, And finally, intense positive emotion. This is a 60-year-old woman describing it as, uh, the immense joy that fills me is above the physical sensations. It is a feeling of total presence, an absolute integration of myself, a feeling of unbelievable harmony of my whole body and myself with life and the world and the all. And that's, uh, yeah, temporal lobe seizures. uh, Highly recommended. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Not from personal experience. Uh, And finally, uh, oh, it's a shame not 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 that great resolution, but okay, so. um, 5-MeO-DMT, okay, so. It's, I mean, has, okay, actually, a show of hands, who has heard of 5-MeO DMT? Okay, maybe a a few people. Uh, Who has heard of regular DMT? Okay, like many more. Okay, so, you know, in 2005, it used to be fashionable to, you know, take salvia and try to garden and record a video for YouTube. And, you know, people used to make a lot of fun of salvia because, you know, it's like this legal high, quote-unquote. but it turns out it's usually a very very unpleasant experience and uh, dmt on the other hand people describe it as kind of these like you know extremely fascinating higher dimensional you know expansion of consciousness where you meet uh alien entities and whatnot and it's true in, in the internet you will find a lot of people saying like salvia and dmt are completely different things if you've tried salvia don't think that because it's a breakthrough breakthrough drug uh in a sense is going to be kind of similar to dmt they're completely different headspaces. now what is not yet very well known in culture is that DMT and 5 meo DMT are also completely different beasts. So DMT makes you hallucinate, kind of this sensation of uh, extreme otherness, contact with uh, super intelligences, and a lot of really weird hallucinations and expansion of consciousness. But it tends to be very mixed when it comes to kind of the valence component. Like, it, it feels good and weird and strange, but it's not, it's not a bliss drug, so to speak. Whereas 5-MeO-DMT, if you have a good trip, uh, especially if you manage to overcome the anxiety of the, of the takeoff, is described as the best possible feeling that you could have by those who've had it. Uh, I don't know of anybody who's had both a temporal seizure uh, and 5-MeO, but it would be actually really interesting to know like what they think. Um, you know, uh, people who administered 5-MeO-DMT, they, the way they describe it is like, uh, When people try it they usually say one of two things either they say this is it (laughs) or oh my god so um it might be described as kind of the culmination of pleasure it's kind of the most you know intense uh, harmonious highest energy possible state of well-being and it's really a complete outlier as well when it comes to states of well-being uh, a really interesting signature, uh, thanks to some analyses we've been able to do, uh, thanks to data that was uh, shared with Qualia research, is that, uh, I mean, 5 meo DMT seems to do two amazing things. One is it, it massively increased the power in the gamma band, which is associated with kind of intensification of consciousness. And second, it massively increased the um, whole brain um, coherence, uh, which is a, a term in, in EEG that has to do with basically how Um, how correlated are the different channels? And it's it's almost kind of like your whole brain becomes the same frequency. Every channel looks the same on 5-meter DMT. Um, And in a way that is kind of reminiscent of of, uh, high high meditation states, but it seems to be its unique thing. Uh, Anyway, uh, this is all to say that, yeah, 5-meter DMT does seem to be one of those, you know, very, very, very far out in the long tail of of possible pleasure. Almost everybody who takes it says is the single most... Intensely pleasurable and meaningful experience in their life uh, even much more so than LSD and DMT um, Okay, so now on to the bad news uh, So basically, uh, I'll explain the pain scales uh, So basically this idea, you know the analog pain scale Which is what you use in, in a hospital if you, you're in an emergency It's kind of like okay, from 1 to 10. How about how bad do you feel that really doesn't cut it for a number of problems and uh, diseases Um, And that was captured uh, for the first time really in the McGill pain index. So, you know, if you just ask from 1 to 10 how bad do you feel, that's, you know, that's one type of question. If instead what you say is like for each part of your body and for these, you know, 50 different types of pain, in how much pain are you right now, right? And the categories of pain involve things such as like crushing and like uh, crucified and like acid bath and, uh, uh, you know, uh, burning and like cold pain. And there's like, you know, many, many different types of pain, unfortunately. And some of these conditions uh, have like many of those at the same time uh, and, uh, and in a very, very, very high levels as well. So kind of like this idea of like, oh, you know, you, it maxes out at 10 out of 10 pain. That just doesn't seem to be true. And it seems like as effective altruists, we really need to take that into account. Uh, and I would kind of like, just from this slide, kind of propose already kind of like a better metric. I call it the, the hell index. Uh, we could define it as the yearly total of people's seconds in pain and suffering that are uh, at or above 20 in the McGill pain index. So maybe, you know, a fracture doesn't cut it, but if you're having fibro- fibromyalgia, then yeah, like that would count as kind of part of the HELL index. Um, I think, yeah, it's important to, to minimize the HELL index. Okay, so pain scales, uh, the main takeaway of the following slides is going to be that in each of these cases, um, people actually talk about these scales in a logarithmic way so uh first the schmidt sting pain index uh here's uh, um, uh, a schmidt uh, accepting his ignoble prize for uh having stung himself with uh, 80 different uh insects from the order Hymenoptera, which basically include ants and wasps and bees and you know intuitively you think like oh gosh like a bee sting hurts and like that's bad but that's the end of it but really a, a bee sting is just a two in a four point scale. Um, and uh, what he said is that um, he tells people, you know, uh, each number is like 10 equivalent of the number before. So like 10 honey bee stings are equal to one harvester ant sting and 10 harvester ant stings are equal to one bullet ant sting. And again, this sounds insane to most people, is like how could something be 10 times more painful? But then think about, how you can just achieve the same with, you know, bees already. You can basically stung yourself ten times in different parts of your body. So like you can already kind of like multiply pain that way. Um, it's just like the the, the quality of pain it can also be uh, more intense. And you know, obviously you could all you know happen to be unlucky and fall in a you know harvester ant um, uh, a nest and be stung you know hundreds of times with harvester ants, which is going to be extraordinarily uh, unpleasant. Um, but yeah, the point is that uh, Justin Smith himself kind of admits the scale is exponential in nature. Uh, then the Scoville units, uh, basically this is kind of like a, a proxy for how spicy different things are. Um, in a sense, this is not exactly a pain scale, it's just a really good proxy for a pain scale, but uh, the way you determine basically the Scoville units of a sauce or, or a pepper is basically you, you take a little you know, drop of it and then you dilute it on water and basically, you see, like, what proportion of water do I need to add for it to be impossible for you to detect any spiciness in the remaining kind of, like, you know, water uh, slightly contaminated with with with, uh, with capsaicin? Um, now, I would make a very strong prediction, which is that if uh, you take the logarithm of the Scoville uh, units, that's going to give you basically the, the scale for how spicy different things are. And you can see that, you know, different different uh, peppers. The the, the scoville units you know range in, in across like a very very extreme values. It's definitely a long tail in this context. Um, it's it might be kind of tempting to trivialize uh, this pain, uh, but I would not recommend trivializing it. So, uh, Amazon reviews of extremely spicy sauces are actually a mine when it comes to uh, phenomenology of pain. Uh, so I'm just gonna read this uh, review. So had just. Have just a drop to test it out. You know, just a drop. It burned so hard, I had to stop everything I was doing and just lay down and a huge glass of milk to hopefully get rid of the pain. The pain does not go away for an hour. I honestly wanted to die as an easier option rather than face the agony again. It made my stomach tingle and even hurt my throat. I was looking for ways to safely saw my tongue off to feel the sweet mercy of relief. I recommended five stars. Um, I mean, I I think uh, that's actually kind of a... uh, I mean, it, it does go in the direction of kind of trivializing the pain, but yeah, I no, people are saying like, the sauce does what it says, I mean... It, um, that said, I would not actually recommend any of you buy this, this stuff, um, because if you read the Amazon reviews, it's super common to basically see, uh, it's like, oh, I was at a friend's house and I saw, you know, that bomb <laughs> beyond inside me in the fridge, and I felt like it can't possibly be that hot, and then I ended up in the ER and with PTSD, so it's like, not, not actually recommended. Uh, uh, okay, so. Uh, okay, so probably the most serious of the pain scales is the uh, keep pain scale, which classifies different grades of cluster headaches, uh, which I described is one of the most painful things you could possibly experience. Um, and yeah the creator of this of the scale is somebody who suffered for cluster, with cluster headaches for many many years and tried many types of medications and kind of like recorded how many they experienced it each day how medications affected them and yeah basically says uh, the keep scale uh, is used in an exponential way a keep of 10 is not just twice as bad as a keep of five it's ten times as intense okay so that that's kind of a uh, actually yeah so that's kind of like the predictions uh, the first prediction you know like existence of extremes I think like we've established there are extremes uh, what other predictions do we have from kind of like a It will in a log normal distribution for for valence so uh, the the second one really is you would expect uh, kind of like very skewed ratios that is people will typically say that their number one best or worst experience uh, is not only a little bit best or a little bit worse than the second one, but a lot better or worse like like perhaps even multiple times better So to kind of like test this we we conducted a survey again This is super low-hanging fruit, you know, very very cheap. The the only expensive thing here is actually the labor of uh, Tagging all of the survey responses, but again, like, you know ju- This is just 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 kind of like seeing the general population what bothers people what makes people happy and um, and uh yeah we collect 110 participants uh 97 uh had like enough quality for us to, to use them um oh sorry uh and um and basically one of the things that we asked them was you know relative to the second most pleasant experience how many times better or worse how many times better was the first most pleasant experience and this is kind of the results that you get uh the first one kind of visualizes the entirety of the responses the second one Uh, kind of like cuts off you know the the top ten highest ones so you can visualize better the long tail but the the takeaway here is that people are saying you know my best experience was five times better than my second best experience so this is like there's a multiplicative factor it's it's not just like you know it was like 20% better Um, if you compare that uh, to kind of like a simulation you know if you simulate okay I'm gonna I'm gonna draw from a log normal distribution assuming that You know, if you're 45 years old or something like that, you've had like 17,000 days, and you're drawing kind of like experiences sample from a log-normal distribution each day, and then you ask, okay, from the pool of experiences that you had, what is the, like how much better is the first one relative to the second one? And you see that you you get a very, very similar pattern. Kind of like uh, in the top kind of side uh, of the scale, you have like, you know, the the first one was like 12 times bigger than the second one. which is completely different than if you kind of like simulate it with a with a normal distribution, right? If you if you're sampling from a normal normal distribution, really you only get something like oh, you know, the best experience was you know 25 percent better than the, the the following one. So it's, uh, it the, the data fits way better a log normal uh, distribution. Okay, so appearance of long tails. So basically, basically this is kind of the prediction that. What will bother people will generally be from a small category of events or a small category of of, uh, medical problems. Uh, And likewise, what makes people happy is gonna be from a small category. And there's gonna be kind of a long tail of, you know, a few people answering from a a whole number of possible situations. So, if we visualize, okay, what what do people say is, you know, belonging in the top three most pleasant experiences in their entire life? The, The base rates is, you know, falling in love, your, your children is born, marriage, sex, uh, <laughs> college graduation, orgasm, uh, alcohol. I should say, you know, vacation. It, it sounds almost kind of like trivial to say like, oh my gosh, vacation. There was one vacation that was one of the top three. But if you read the answers, it's actually really compelling. I mean, it's something like, you know, I was planning this trip for a year. And I went to Europe and backpacked for a month with my brother. And it went better than expected. You know, it's kind of this extreme scenarios of things going really well and also you know falling in love is not just you know this random person i had a hookup with is more like i was in love with him for seven years and he was way out of my league and and one day he confessed his love to me and like okay like this kind of movie almost kind of like movie-like situation is what people tend to report as some of their their best experiences why is sex differentiated from orgasm then? yeah well that, that was uh, yeah, just based on the description so sex is kind of like the the whole act including foreplay um and orgasm is just the moment of orgasm and uh, there was a little bit about um uh, very very there was a bit of a kind of like gender imbalance there with, with males saying orgasm more than sex. but i mean really i would say it's basically the same thing It's just like different aspects of it to get emphasized you will also notice that like the The events here have like a very undefined like timeline. I'm not saying like hey What was the single best second of your life? Although maybe it would also have been very interesting to ask that Um, But yeah, again, this is just kind of a a pilot study to to see What is in people's minds when you ask them the best and worst? Uh, This is in terms of you know the worst Uh, You get things that you might expect, you know mother death, you know childbirth Uh, But interestingly you get you know kidney stones migraines, you know broken arm uh, you know, thing things are actually you know medical things, uh, and and I'll I'll get back to that. Okay, uh, so that kind of like tests the appearance of long tails. I mean, as you can see, you know, it's a very skewed distribution, and that's not even showing all of the responses. I actually caught it at like uh, when you get like two. Uh, I got like a whole you know tw- almost kind of like the double of the size when it comes to people, just like one person saying something, right? Like, but you have kind of like this at the top these few experiences that account. Or like the, the majority of the instances. Are are they, sorry? Are those showing people who say that thing is the best or worst thing ever, or just how roughly how they rank those things? Uh, that's just appearance in the list of the top three. Okay, so, so I'm not. So people are saying their top three things, and, yes. and then so LSD comes up very high for a small number of people. Yes. So okay. Okay. Cool. Yes. Interesting. Uh, the child is second high on both. Yeah. Sides. But then, I mean, that, that, that's a really great segue into actually what I did with the data because I not not only did I ask them to you know list in random order the top three and bottom three, I also asked them make sure they're like ranked, right? It's like, what is the top three? What is the top one? What is the top second? You know, and what is the third best or worst? So, um, and I did use that data. So here's how how you can use it. So basically, you whenever you see kind of like a two experiences. Um, Uh, being ranked against each other you can almost think of it as kind of like those two experiences uh, had a match and basically one of them won as kind of like the the better one rather than the other so you can you can apply things such as like um, tournament algorithms for like oh okay there's all of these matches between different experiences how do you derive kind of like a latent trait based on all of those rankings Um, uh, and also I mean what that graph is visualizing is the graph of differences so basically kind of like I mean Obviously it's not a lot of data, so I had to do like, some, some smoothing to make sure it's not just like a statistical irregularities, but kind of like above a certain threshold of pairs uh, of appearances, um, I kind of visualize which ones are better than, when, than which other ones. So, you know, if you have that type of visualization, you can then you know, apply something like a, a network centrality algorithm on, on that directed graph and to see kind of like where all of the differences is being pulling into. Uh, and if you do that, then you get kind of like a, in a sense, like a more perfected ranking because it's also taking into account not only do they appear in the top three, but also which ones are better relative to other ones. And if you do that, then, yeah, I mean, children born happens to be, you know, the best experience. Uh, and then like falling in love, uh, travel, sex, uh, and extreme sports. Now, extreme sports, uh, it's actually way up there. Largely because a couple people said extreme sports was better than the experience of having their children born. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of like, that's why, you know, it, it got bumped up so high up, even though its appearance base rate is not that high. But uh, yeah, uh, now I'm gonna switch to the negative one. Because you count based on the number of people who say it, right? Yeah, I mean... So, like, a very few number of people would, would even try those things. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. so that, 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 exactly, if you, if you don't, I mean, the, the advantage of a, kind of, like, the deference approach is that, uh, basically you can bump in the ranking things that appear infrequently, mm-hmm. simply because there are, you know, few people do them. Mm-hmm. But perhaps, among the people who do them, they tend to be super high up, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you, you want to be able to control for that factor. Oh, okay. Um, there's, like, yeah, other, other ways of controlling for it, but this is, this is just one produces a nice visualization I, I would recommend going to the the, the actual website and uh, you, you can kind of explore the graph and see who who says that what was better or worse than something else uh, and if you do this with the bad stuff you also get kind of a an updated ranking with you know father mother death childbirth uh, car accident uh, you know di- divorce of parents also was pretty high up uh, anyway okay so uh, now I'm gonna actually kind of like based on all of these descriptions a better way of conceptualizing pleasure and pain scales so if you have kind of the naive view of uh, you know feeling good is having a certain certain positive you know feelings in your body maybe if you feel twice as good that's having twice as many of those positive feelings in your body and i mean if you're in a kind of very neutral hedonic state maybe this graph doesn't resonate with you but if you're receiving a massage you kind of will you know understand what i'm talking about when i say like amount of good feelings in your body like, there's a sense in which that's kind of like there's an amount of it. And what I wanna, wanna say is that based on uh, the previous research and also a lot of trip reports, um, a much better visualization is kind of the, the long tail uh, uh, scale, where basically how uh, the intensity and, and the prevalence of good feelings basically grows exponentially as you go up in the scale. Uh, with things such as like 10 out of 10 pleasure being like a good 5 MEO DMT trip or you know, a temporal lobe seizure. And maybe, you know, at the 7 out of 10 scale, you have kind of MDMA and, you know, a good state of mania or uh, deep meta meditation, this uh, loving-kindness meditation, you know, 2CB. All of that stuff can be really way up there and is counterintuitive how insanely good it can actually be. Uh, now, yeah, warning, I'm going to switch to the negative one. Um, I don't like to think about it, but honestly, I, I thought it was important to visualize. Uh, So based on kind of descriptions of people, you know, cluster headaches, they say it's not that you just have kind of like a fire going on your head. They say you have kind of a supernova of pain. It's like something, you know, out of out of this world, really uh, alien in terms of intensity and quality that just shouldn't even exist to begin with. Uh, But yeah, this is kind of like a, in a sense, more evocative of what may actually be true when it comes to extreme suffering. Uh, with uh, you know fibromyalgia, childbirth, amputation being like a seven out of ten, and these other worse things like cluster headache, trigeminal neuralgia, and complex complex regional pain syndrome, being in kind of the the upper ranges. Uh, and this is yeah kind of like visualizing them at the same time for for contrast. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna kind of uh, round this uh, presentation with a, a brief discussion of kind of like key pleasures and pains, which. Um, again because a few things produce such intense hedonic responses it actually makes sense to kind of like be very object level about what what these things are so um, uh, key pleasures I mean definitely I was uh, surprised with for example MDMA LSD psilocybin actually showing up in the general population even though the base rate of people using these substances is relatively low I mean if you look at surveys it's about like 10% of people have tried MDMA you know and I got Five responses out of a hundred saying MDMA was their top experience. So that means that you know maybe again not a very large data data, uh, data set, but approximately you know half of the people who've tried MDMA will rank it in the top three best experiences. Uh, and the same with psilocybin and LSD. That that is something that we already kind of knew. Uh, there, there are these studies where they give, for example, you know methylphenidate, which is ritalin, a stimulant, it's kind of cocaine, uh, or psilocybin in a placebo controlled way, and then they ask them you know how would you rate these experiences and and you find that you know more than 60% would rate the high-dose mushroom experience as among the top five best experiences Um, to kind of like zoom in on uh, having a child I mean I do remember uh, the mother of a friend of mine in childhood saying like oh the moment I had you know your friend uh, I held, held him for the first time I believed in God which just like, the experience was so out of this world that I thought, like, yeah, this can't be explained otherwise. And, and reading through the responses, that's kind of the, the general sense that I got. So here are some actual codes. Uh, obviously, I'm taking out anything that could de-anonymize it, but you know, it's, having a child is, it is almost an indescribable feeling. I felt like I understood the purpose and meaning of life at that moment. I didn't know it was possible to feel the way I felt when I saw her. You know, I was the happiest I have ever been in my life. That moment is something that I will cherish forever. The only other time I have ever felt that way was the subsequent birth of my other two children, right? It's, just, it's something so out there in kind of like these extremes long tails that it's kind of like a te- category of its own. The only other thing that can compare is other instances of the same category. Um, it was an unbelievably emotional, and I don't think anything in the world could top the amount of pleasure uh, and joy I had when I got to see her and hold her. Um, this is also true for fathers. Uh, for example, I was twenty-one when my son was born. It was amazing. I never thought I would be a father. I did not realize that I could love someone or something so so much. So, um, I guess like the, the t- t- takeaway here is, yeah, people generally are very surprised with how good it feels to have uh, a child. Um, So coming next, a drug that makes you feel like you just had ten thousand children. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but yeah, I mean, presumably there's like some brain areas that are basically just completely reserved for that experience, and you just need to kind of like make the brain actually believe that this is happening for those brain areas to finally get activated, and you know there are completely other categories. So. Key pains, uh, things that definitely uh, were interesting to find was kidney stones and migraines, uh, childbirth, death of father and mother. Uh, very common, but not in the same level, at least when it, you do kind of the deference analysis, is broken bones, you know, that's a super common problem. Uh, teeth problems, uh, tooth abscesses, you know, the wisdom teeth, all, you know, and romantic breakups. Those are kind of like very, very common, but they're not in the same level, uh, presumably, Maybe by a couple orders of magnitude, as where the ones above. Where does poverty fall on this scale? Uh, poverty. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there was at least two people who said like financial ruin. And if you had to guess on your one to ten exponential scale, where do you think it would generally be? I don't know. Like three. I, I don't know. But I, I would, I wouldn't put it, you know, in the same category as like childbirth or a kidney stone or something. Um, now, okay. So kidney stones and migraines. Uh, well, I'm gonna say. A super surprising thing here is that, you know, the base rate of kidney stones—you know, 10% of people get kidney stones—and I got 10 people saying that kidney stones was one of the top three most painful experiences. Meaning that pretty much anybody who has a kidney stone will rank it as like among the worst experiences they could have. Uh, and the same with migraines—the base rate of migraines is about like 10%, and also 10 people said migraines was one of the most uh, painful things in their in their life. Um, and uh, I mean, the, that's in a sense like, I would say that's a huge, huge uh, blind spot when it comes to effective altruism. Is like, hey, there's like these, you know, hellish experiences that are extremely prevalent happening all the time, and there's actually ways of tackling them, tackling them, preventing them, and treating them uh, that are like cost-effective and scalable, and we're just completely blind to them. Uh, so that's probably one of the takeaways I would, I would give of this uh, presentation. Think more about kidney stones and migraines. I mean, honestly, that (laughs) might be very object level, but seriously, seriously. Um, In the the context of migraines, and this also applies for cluster headaches, uh, surprisingly, uh, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT are actually uh, ways of treating these in a way that seem to work way better than what's actually uh, available in in, uh, the pharmaceutical options. So, you know, legal alternatives, for example, uh, uh, Imetrex uh, is perhaps like the, the best thing for cluster headaches they take uh, the pain from like 10 out of 10 to seven out of 10. But it's something that you can only use, uh, I believe like once or twice a day. And more so if um, if you do use it once or twice a day, it can give you a heart attack and it has all of these terrible side effects. Uh, and, you, and actually the headaches get worse the more you use it. Uh, so it's like all around, that's like the best that, that medicine has come up with. Whereas like psilocybin or DMT basically take the pain from 10 out of 10 to one out of 10. And they basically don't produce long-term tolerance. Uh, They seem to actually be very like, about like uh, 70% of people who've tried them, who have these conditions say that they they work completely. They basically eliminate the problem. Of course, what do we do with the remaining 30%? Uh, It's it's important to think about. But just from a, hey, like let's prevent a massive amount of like hellish uh, states that account of huge percentage of of the suffering in the world. You know, perhaps like helping uh, psilocybin or DMT uh, be used by cluster headache patients migraine patients might be a, a really big win uh, with that I would actually uh, add that right now there's kind of like an emerging market of legal psilocybin retreats uh, there's like this fantastic uh, psilocybin retreat called the admin retreat that happens in Jamaica um, and uh, it's not it's not even framed as kind of a spiritual thing uh, it's just like hey come and try psilocybin if you want to explore your own consciousness and it's totally legal because in Jamaica is legal so I think A possible project for effective altruism may actually be fly people with cluster headaches to Jamaica and give them psilocybin. (laughs) Like it it might be insanely cost-effective when it comes to reducing uh, suffering. Uh, Uh, Yes? Does the... so if you are prone to cluster headaches, does taking psilocybin make you not prone to them? Or does it just like, if you get a cluster headache, you take psilocybin, and then that fixes that specific instance of cluster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it works kind of both ways. So basically there's this concept of a like a uh, something that aborts the cluster headache as opposed to something that basically kind of uh, aborts the cycle. So it goes in in cycles, most people kind of have them in periods of several months. Uh, What all the reports seem to be showing is that if you take psilocybin or DMT or LSD uh, in the first couple of cluster headaches that you have in the cycle, it may not only abort that cluster headache but basically prevent the entirety of the cycle. Uh, and then you actually just need you know three or four doses. And the other crazy thing is that the doses that work for migraine and, and cluster headaches, they're not even like strongly psychedelic. I mean they're like relatively mild doses. Some people even get relief with microdoses. So it's not even like you have to be super concerned about like, oh like you know they might have a bad treat because no, it's a pretty small dose. what, what actually works? Um, and yeah so I mean obviously for something like a retreat in Jamaica a lot of logistics need to be taken into account is something like take people who have like reliably cluster headaches in the same month of the year every year uh, and then take them exactly the when is that kind of like, like scheduled say, to, to to start to happen headaches usually occur in cyclical patterns <laughs> <and cluster laughs> ah, interesting some of the severe pain around 1 be somebody somebody asked maybe yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. I probably said Okay, I probably said Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. To summarize, uh, long tails matter, and they matter quite a bit, uh, especially if you want to get that sweet 80 percent of the problem fixed. Um, metrics and rationality. Really, you have to think about Goodhart's law. Don't be deceived by you know things that will optimize, you know, get over the hump of poverty or things like that. Uh, We probably live in a log-normal world based on all of the evidence, and this doesn't only go for for pain, also goes for pleasure, and probably many other things as well. Uh, We talked about peak pleasure states and how they are, like, insanely better than you can even imagine. Uh, It's actually unimaginable unless you've had the experience or you're close to having it. Uh, And pain scales, they seem to be explicitly logarithmic by the people who actually built them. Uh, so all of that kind of like paints the picture that yeah, we live in a log normal world um, Pain is way worse of a problem that we may imagine and we should really focus on extreme suffering Even what we care is, you know minimizing suffering uh, and yeah, that concludes the presentation uh, Thank you. All right. uh, cool. uh, maybe five ten minutes for questions or? cool uh yeah uh why not try to legalize 5 DMT? uh yes we are Can you question, please? why why not try to legalize 5 DMT and or put it in the water supply and or put it in the water supply um <laughs> well okay right no it's it's not orally active uh you do need to either inject it or vaporize it uh, unlike regular DMT, it is not advisable to take a MAOI in order to prevent its breakdown. It's actually toxic. Like if you take a, like, harmaline, which basically you use it to combine it with DMT for ayahuasca, and you combine it with 5 meo DMT instead, it might be really bad. It kind of like tends to lead to medical emergencies. So the only safe ways of actually doing it is vaporizing it or injecting it. Okay. Uh, the, I would say, kind of the main problem here is that there is a risk for bad trip and also those are about the worst. Um, that said, uh, there is kind of this very strong suspicion that like, whether you have a very bad experience of having DMT is very, very dependent on how quickly you come up. Basically, if you come up too quickly, you get uh, a panic attack, and then the panic attack gets amplified by the intensification of consciousness. Uh, but if you're coming up slowly, and you kind of like do it carefully, or you do it with an injection pump in a scheduled way, Um, then most people are totally fine with it. The the other alternative might actually be taking it in conjunction with MDMA, which uh, I read online a number of people say it works really, really well. Um, That said, there's a subset of people who always have a really good experience on 5-MeO-DMT. From the point of view of qualia research, uh, 5-MeO-DMT is super important. Obviously, I would say it's like Probably the most important drug to study when it comes to like figuring out what the nature of heaven will be, um, and uh, but but I would I would say rather than you know let's rush into giving it to everybody I think like no let's figure out who should we actually give it to uh, so that we can study it scientifically make a scientific movement that really takes it seriously I think like that's that's the way to go. A quick note: It's legal in Canada. Dubai. Yes, it's legal in Canada and Mexico. Uh, and we are interested, there's no plans, but we're interested in the possibility of maybe recruiting a bunch of really smart people and take them to Mexico and try them and basically record the experience, write the experience out, just, like, just make it, the, yeah. Like put them an MRI or EEG or something? At least EEG, yeah, um, and I mean even the EEG shows like really promising data, uh, kind of like a plug for <laughs> Qualia Research Institute, I mean we have the theory that uh, pleasure has to do with the symmetry of your brain state, and firing DMT, you know, this uh, amplification of gamma coherence would be a very strong signature of harmony in the brain. The fact that that correlates with extremes of bliss is uh, is a really good news for the symmetry theory of aliens and the research of qualia uh, research. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not really a question, but uh, Adam Lerner, who's an EAMIC member and a bioethics professor at NYU, independently came to a similar conclusion that like the worst suffering and Severe repression when what you came to as a are suffering. Yeah, should be of like great moral concern to us. Okay. So if you're interested, I can connect you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's nothing. Cool. Uh, over, over there. Yeah. He's, a lot of this uh, seems to basically point to there are utility monsters out there. Yes. Um, and you know that like a lot of current metrics might not really account for that very strongly, but I do wonder to what degree that's a feature versus a bug with the existing metrics in terms of. Uh, allocating resources in a total sync way towards a few utility monsters and how much credence we should actually put in some important subjective experiences of so-called yeah no I mean that's yeah yeah so it seems like uh all of this seems to indicate that there are utility monsters for those who haven't heard of this concept is basically in utilitarianism they they ask the question of like well if fred can experience four quadrillion amounts of orgasm per second if you give him a piece of bread maybe which Turn the entire world into a bread factory for bread, like this kind of that that type of uh, uh, counter argument. It's usually a reductio ad absurdum to utilitarianism. Uh, personally, I do bite the bullet. Uh, it does require you to reconceptualize actually what humans are. You can think of human brains not really as like you know unified entities over time. You you really should think of them as experienced machines, and you should really think of the who is a moral patient is not a person is a moment of experience and if you think in those terms then yeah actually those utility monsters really do matter Um, and anything that kind of like sweeps them under the rug is doing a huge disservice to the biggest sufferers out there Um, that said there is a really good point which is some people would be concerned hey like now that we know this shouldn't we just invest all of our resources on getting rid of cluster headaches and, and just abandon everything else well no because we still need to keep the lights on And uh, We need to in a sense like make the movement grow. Uh, There's like self-sustaining and long-term, you know long-term considerations So how I go about this is say actually we should have kind of like two pots of of money or resources one that gets directed to just you know the deepest most troubling moral patients like you know cluster headaches kidney stones, etc. and the other part is kind of like using it in order to Take people who are kind of like in a painful state that is dysfunctional and getting them over the hump into a highly functional state. So that allows you to basically actually grow. So, and, and the difference here is basically how much pain can a person endure become before they become dysfunctional? And when it comes to, for example, oh, being able to write code or type a paper or like give a presentation, the kind of like the threshold is something like, if you are at two out of 10 pain, you can do it. If you're at four out of 10 pain, you can't. So, actually, investing resources on taking people who are four out of ten pain and moving them into two out of ten pain will increase the functionality of those people. Whereas, you know, taking people who are like ten out of ten pain and moving them to like six out of ten pain, that's a huge, huge moral success, but it doesn't actually grow the the, the movement forward. You know, it, it doesn't actually grow effective altruism because those people are going to continue to be dysfunctional. So, uh, advocate can at least twin approach of uh, improve the functionality of people at the same time as tackling the deepest moral patience. Yes? What are your thoughts about non-humans as subjects of experience and subjects of health? Oh yeah, no, I think... Yes, I mean, we at the Quality Research Institute we take really seriously uh, animal sentience or non-human animal sentience. Um, Something that comes out of kind of this analysis is that the priority should actually be on investigating which species suffer the most? And then also, are there species specific type of suffering that may be also astronomical that we may not realize? And uh, it it seems that that's actually kind of true. I'm not sure if it's species specific, but for example, uh, it is known that cats suffer from cluster headaches and cows also can suffer from cluster headaches. So I would say like, oh, we should also really consider that as an important uh, thing to to care about. and uh, yeah, I mean, in the broader broader space, I would say the exact same argument as before. Like, let's allocate, you know, a big chunk of the resources to the deepest suffering. The reason why I think humans are somewhat of a priority is largely instrumental, that they are the only only animals who can actually do something about it. So, it is important to you know allocate some resources in human survival and human well-being, feeling better than well, so you're hyperproductive, and not only you know exhaust all of our resources right away. Uh, but yeah, no, we 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 care very much about it. Uh, I think you were yeah. There um, we So um, I kind of feel like uh, like you didn't you didn't address like questions of, of wireheading or drug addiction. Like, yeah. Um, does this does this analysis lead us to the path of like we should just have a a super intelligent AI that hooks everybody up to wireheading machine? Right. Um, all of that hinges on a number of things, but a very big one is personal identity. Is like, uh, as I was saying, I tend to see the world through kind of these lens of brains or experience machines. So it doesn't really matter who gets to experience what. In reality, it's just consciousness. There's not really kind of like a, you know, metaphysical subject of experience that continues over time in one person. Uh, that, I would say that's kind of an illusion. Uh, in that sense, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, if, like, you know, getting a person to be ultra happy as opposed to building an artificial machine that is ultra happy i would say then the outcome is the same that doesn't really okay, matter i'm saying but the machine should hook everyone up to uh, to wireheading. sure okay i have a a, a piece in quality computing i highly recommend it's called wireheading done right so why it's good <laughs> oh excellent I it yesterday. there's an advocate here <laughs> no, uh, wireheading done right so basically that addresses the, the the question of okay like if we all if we figure out a way to be ultra happy Will that kind of like make us inactive and just be couch locked for the rest of our life? And and the answer is it really depends on how you wire head. So, sure, if you stimulate you know the outer shell of the nucleus accumbens, you feel kind of this opioid high without tolerance. Yeah, maybe you will be couch locked for the rest of your life. Uh, evolutionary selection pressures will obviously take care of you know people who do that. They won't reproduce. Um, But we should, you know, we shouldn't just let people do that uh, and have kind of this moral catastrophe of, you know, 80% of the population wireheading poorly. Instead, I think uh, I advocate for a better theory of wireheading, how to wirehead properly. And kind of the principle here is rather than having, um, so there's like this, let's say, like a state of bliss of a certain type rather than just trying to be there all the time. What you do is you identify different types of bliss. Uh, And just to give an example, there's this thing we call fast euphoria, which is, you know, stimulants like amphetamines There's like this uh, slow euphoria, which is opioids and alcohol Uh, And then there's like a philosophical slash spiritual euphoria, perhaps better described as uh, uh, Pushing the brain to a critical state of criticality Um, And that one is basically kind of like maximizes creativity uh, and, and, and thought power so what you would do is basically set up the reward circuitry such that the more you are in one of these uh, types of bliss that has a certain functionality, it makes it easier to experience a different type of bliss. So basically, you wake up in the morning with extreme, you know, amphetamine-like energy, uh, eventually you transition to kind of this creativity state, and then this very restful sleep. And basically, in that way, you never get stuck, but you're always in a blissful state. So that, that's sort of why we are heading to the okay. mm. Uh Yes? Uh, what do you think about uh... A couple of things. So one, the nature of these self-reported, uh, yeah. things, and then uh, you know, but there's ways to get out of that and self, you know, self-reported or yes. outside of And then also, what do you think of uh, kind of a hedonic trend of things? And, yeah, and a couple of different ways. But I mean, let's say it's DMT versus alcohol. If like, you had yeah. alcohol once in your life, yes. you had DMT every day, and I yes. think you might flip those scales. Of, like, which which one's better? And, if you yeah yeah yeah. Uh, I mean the hedonic treadmill is the biggest obstacle for like sustainable happiness Uh, uh, just to address that very briefly uh, I also have a piece called uh, anti-tolerance drugs so I don't I don't think actually you know finding a better MDMA is necessarily good for the world because most likely it's just gonna have the same side effects Uh, it's gonna feel great for a little bit and then cause this long withdrawn negative uh, uh, effect afterwards and the same with like a different kind of opioid, you know, it's, you also get addicted to it, it's going to produce tolerance. Um, but incredibly, there seem to actually be substances out there that basically either block, reverse, or, um, or prevent, uh, yeah, block, reverse, or lessen uh, tolerance development. So it seems that if you take, for example, opioids in conjunction with, uh, there's this weird drug called problemide, uh, and also you know, black seed oil, and uh, ibogaine, uh, it seems to actually prevent the development of tolerance. So I, I would be very bullish uh, in terms of like drug development, especially for cases of chronic pain, to not just look at one more opioid. It's like, no, 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 investigate anti-tolerance drugs so we can basically overcome entirely the hedonic treadmill problem. Um, sabotage the hedonic treadmill, uh, so to speak. Uh, now, when it comes to kind of like how, how you know, doing DMT once versus, uh, you know, getting, getting drunk in a responsible way, which one like has the bigger area under the curve? Um, well, the crazy thing is that 5-amino DMT actually doesn't have any tolerance, and that's kind of a mystery uh, pharmacologically. So, you know, if you take amphetamines, uh, the next day is gonna feel kind of half as intense uh, if you have like a recreational dose. Alcohol as well, you get used to it very quickly. Uh, psychedelics, you have kind of this window, like three days afterwards, you, if you take the same dose, it almost doesn't feel like anything. Now DMT, regular DMT, uh, also has very little tolerance, but it has immediate tolerance. So if you take DMT and 15 minutes you take DMT again, it's gonna feel uh, kind of half as intense. But after one hour, it's like back to normal. Now, 5-MeO-DMT doesn't produce any tolerance at all, meaning you can actually take it every five minutes and continue to be in that state. <laughs> um, so if I was to kind of like optimize my life just for myself and I didn't care about anybody else, I would probably you know, meditate and, and be on a 5-MeO-DMT all the time. <laughs> that might be the way to go. <laughs> questions? <laughs> uh, maybe we can stop the formal questions now, yeah. and uh, everyone can just like, Socialize and I'm sure you'll be around. Yeah, yeah, I'll be around. and uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much, everybody. <laughs>